Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, China has formally arrested and charged two Canadians that have been detained since January. Where do we go from here? The U.S. president has issued a pardon to Conrad Black. Are there more on the way? And we've talked a lot about laundering money through British Columbia. But apparently Ontario is worse. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, as I mentioned, China has formally arrested two Canadians who have been detained since January. This, of course, on the heels after the arrest of the Huawei CFO. Uh, the, the difference is is uh, the two Michaels, Michael Spaver, uh, Michael Spaver, and Michael Kovrig, are being held in less than favorable conditions. Uh, lights on all the time. Not a lot of uh, contact with consular services, lawyers, etc. Uh, meanwhile, while the CFO of Huawei is enjoying her multi-million dollar mansion, uh, waiting extradition on uh, an international treaty, we'll talk about that. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University. He's with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Uh, Good afternoon, Scott. So what does this signal? Why now, all of a sudden, the charge is being laid against the two Michaels? It's a continuing ratcheting up of the kind of pressure China is attempting to bring to bear on Canada to basically release what they consider a hostage. Uh, They're they're princes of one of their favorite uh, industries. So uh, this is another further step. It's interesting to me that um, it's being interpreted as positive, and that shows you the degree to which we have descended into uh, some kind of a a nightmarish situation. It's considered positive because their previous, uh, up until now, kind of a pre-arrest detention for interrogation period has been so harsh that it's considered moving them to a regular jail is an improvement. But they're now being officially charged with spying. Uh, the uh, the uh, suspicion of gathering and stealing state secrets for foreign forces. I'm not sure if that's a death penalty in China, but I suspect it is. Um, so uh, I guess at least now uh, we know what they're up against, but does that change the plan of attack in any way now that charges, formal charges have been laid? Well, whose plan of attack? It's, it's, uh, it shows that China has, until now, seen no reason to face any uh, pushback, any serious concern about actions taken by them against us. And what that means is that, quite clearly, this is an asymmetrical situation, uh, Canada versus China. But uh, what that also shows is they don't believe that the U.S. has our back. Remember, we have to how did we get into all this situation? We are byproducts here of America's campaign against Iran. She was arrested uh, on uh, at the U.S. request for extradition for suspicion of violating American sanctions uh, involving Iran. And at the same time, China is now the number one issue in foreign affairs, along with Iran, for the U.S. So we are now caught up in the highest of power politics between the U.S. and major international concerns for the U.S., Iran and China. And even though Mike Pompeo said back in, Secretary of State for the U.S. said back in, I think, December, uh, 
we are going to be raising this. We take this seriously. There's no sign that, in fact, the U.S. is going to be assisting us, and we have to, um, we have to uh, go it alone. So my next question was, uh, what is Donald Trump's uh, feeling on all of this? So you don't feel that the U.S. does have our back on this, especially well, no after... visible sign of it. And but that seems opportunity. It, it seems odd, Elliot, considering they just thanked us for, you know, having their back in, yes. in, in detaining her in the first place. Yes. Uh, they also, by the way, are not moving quickly or expeditiously to act on that extradition treaty. One thing they could do, there's... They could take one of two actions in regard to this. The first is to say, never mind, we aren't going to uh, ask for this extradition. Go ahead and let her out. And that would get us off that hook, so to speak. Or they could say, yes, we are serious about it. Send her down next weekend. Uh, we're going to send up a plane for her. Yeah. Neither of those actions have been taken by the U.S., leaving us on the hook. And it certainly would lead one to believe what some had been speculating earlier, that this person, the, the Huawei CFO, is being used as a bargaining chip in regard to the U.S.-China well, uh, trade that, deal. Scott, but but <laughs> we have been insisting all along this is the rule of law, this is the normal operation yeah. of international procedures, we have to we have to do this because we're requested. And then Donald Trump said, oh, well, maybe we will swap her yeah. uh, as part of our, our negotiations with China on a trade deal. So that line has been blurred. So why do you think they played this card now? It's a good question. I think, on the one hand, they can. That is, there's no reason they see why they shouldn't. Uh, there's been nothing happening on our side to release her. Therefore, they are going to just keep raising the ante. Remember, they are also uh, really harming our economic relationship by raising what's widely considered... Uh, inaccurate charges on our canola and other and soybeans and other products so the trading relationship is also being impeded uh, although they don't they say it's not linked but clearly it is so this is a raising of the stakes by china because they see no reason not to um, and, and obviously this isn't resonating with the United States. What about uh, the CEO of Huawei and the father of, right. of who is being detained? He spoke up um, a few weeks ago and, and basically tried to make it sound like everything was hunky-dory. Where is he in all of this? Yes. Is, is, does he have the power to, to push any buttons here? Uh, if he has any power, it would be inside China, uh, not here. What he's been saying is this. Uh, remember, we also have on our side one remaining card to play, which is should we ban Huawei participating in our 5G uh, networks going forward, whereas the U.S. is pressing all of the allies, including us, to say ban them uh, or else, or else you can't be part of the Five Eyes. So it's strong. But we have not taken that step as yet. And he is saying, the father has been saying, I don't know why people are saying that we are a threat. We are not a threat. We will undergo any scrutiny you wish. We will put it through your own processes to see to it that we are not able to spy on you. We are a private company. The one problem with that is, is that they clearly have been a designated international champion by China. They are a favored com uh, company, and they are doing very well globally. And there's nothing to stop China because they've now actually put it in writing, they didn't need even to do that, to say, well, we think it's in our interest for you to include a backdoor, uh, we'll find a way to let you uh, 
be on our behalf acting in our state interest uh, in terms of spying, putting something in all that 5G uh, backbone of the future. And it seems odd uh, right from the get-go why we should have to try to prove that their system is secure. I mean, you, know, you try to break into it. I don't know. That just doesn't seem seem to be the right angle to approach this. Anyway, um, that being said, uh, does he have any power? Uh, obviously, he's trying to get his networks and, and, and his technology sold around the world. Does well, he, he have any... his daughter back. Yes. Does he have any control of how, how this is being played in China and say, hey, you know what, this is maybe not the right way to, to do this? Well, we don't know that. We know that he is a, a powerful person inside of China, because of his economic weight and his closeness to the regime. Uh, you asked earlier, why was this action taken now? For all we know, he's turned around and said, look, I'm not getting any, any traction dealing with the, uh, with the Canadians. I want my daughter back. Why don't you lean on Canada even further? You can only speculate on these things. But in terms of focusing on him and his role, that's about as far as we can go. What about, uh, we, we know that we've agreed to this process. Um, have we gone too far to change our mind on this? Did the Attorney General not, does the Attorney General not have final say? Yes. Uh, do you think that they'll bring up the issue again? Well, look, clearly this is being, this, she is being used as a, as a, part, a bargaining chip here, and, and Canadians are suffering because of this. So we're going to drop all this and we're going to let her go. Well, it's not impossible that Canada has insisted all along that, uh, if you listen to Christia Freeland, she uses rule of law uh, repeatedly in her statements. And, and by the way, that's what the Chinese have just done, that the courts are independent and they are following the procedures they have to follow, and we are not going to interfere. That's both the Canadian and the, yeah. and the uh, Chinese position. Of, it's a bit more credible on the Chinese side, uh, on our side than on the Chinese side where there is no separation between, between the judiciary and the state in any meaningful way because the Communist Party reigns supreme and their interest reigns supreme. No, the, um, our situation is, is that we are the smaller partner here and we are collateral damage in effect between the, part, the, the game going on, the power games going on between the U.S. and Iran and the U.S. and China, and we have to basically do our part. There is some pressure now for us to take stronger action. That is, why don't we apply the Magnitsky Act, the Global Magnitsky Act? Uh, this is in today's papers. That is a way for Canada to apply targeted sanctions against individuals who are involved in corrupt uh, practices or, or violations of human rights. Not in the case of, of what we're talking about, are people who have been basically picked up and accused of spying as hostages, but in terms of the Uyghurs and what's happening inside China. So we could try to do that. That is, we could try to raise the, the pressure on a different pressure point with China by raising the possibility that individuals will be sanctioned under our law, the Global Magnitsky Act. That's a possibility. There's another possibility, and one that frankly surprised me a bit, because the Chinese ambassador to Canada back in, I think, January, wrote an op-ed that was just blistering, and I've never seen anything from a diplomat uh, of this nature accusing Canada, although he said the West, but he's, he's, he's Chinese ambassador to Canada, mm. of white supremacy and egotism. But accusing our government of white supremacy might have perhaps 
raised the possibility that we should have phoned, you know, called him in and sent him home for consultations, that that's uh, undiplomatic language. Clearly, we feel, the government feels, moving slowly and cautiously and mobilizing our allies to the degree possible is having behind-the-scenes diplomacy rather than finger-pointing publicly and dramatic actions publicly. Our government at the moment seems to feel that's the only approach we have. Uh, the fact that these two have now been charged, uh, can this be used uh, in our favor to release uh, the Huawei CFO? I well, don't see any direct way of doing that. That is, we everybody says these aren't related. Uh, we say it is related, but we can't. There's no unless you really want to get into a hostage situation. That is, and it's been suggested by important voices in Canada, we should just go find some more Chinese to arrest. Mm-hmm. And then we have a true hostage exchange. That's not the normal Canadian practice, although there's undoubtedly uh, reasons to be suspicious of certain um, people of Chinese with Chinese connections in terms of espionage, in terms of normal criminal behavior. So that certainly would be a path we could go. It doesn't seem to be the one that's most likely at the moment. At the moment, we seem to be caught in a global power struggle where we are paying the cost and we are a subsidiary that is a a much smaller player versus China. And we do need, as our government keeps saying, our allies to work with us to resolve this issue. Uh, Why can't Canada say to the United States, hey, uh, unless you do something here, we're going to release her because now we have two Canadians possibly more in danger here? So, and you guys seem to be dragging your feet here. We're concerned about our citizens in the country. So you either expedite this, you figure out what you're doing, or we release her. Yes, there's a um, possibility that that kind of chatter is going on behind the scenes. It's not something one can raise in any public way because technically, officially, practically, and in, in, in reality, we have a court system that is in play yeah. on this issue. So we cannot say, never mind, right. our courts don't matter, uh, this was all just a game anyway, yeah. but we can certainly tell the U.S. that privately. Fascinating. It's not over yet. Elliot Tepper's been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. And uh, always good to talk to you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots to talk about in regard to what's happening in the United States. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News based out of Washington, uh, and get his take on a few things that have been going on uh, in and around, uh, between Canada and uh, the United States. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Reggie, uh, I know we didn't initially want to talk about this, but I've got to mention, because this is such a big story here in regard to the Canadians detained in China now being formally charged. Does this resonate at all in the United States? No, this is still actually not making any kind of headlines down here. You know, when I saw the emails that were kind of being bounced around through Global this morning, I was like, well, this is something that I should probably take a look at. But down here, for the most part, none of the major networks are picking this up. None of the newspapers are kind of putting it above the fold if they're even putting it somewhere on the front page. This is still very much a Canada and China a situation. Uh, although, going back to what that caller said about why the government just doesn't act like this, because there are treaties that are in place that, uh, that have to deal with extradition, and there are judicial processes that need to take place. So while it seems like, you know, America's kind of dragging its feet and not getting uh, not getting the ball rolling, there are uh, processes that need to be taken place. And unfortunately, in the land of America, there's a lot of things that go on. And, you know, sometimes things just get shoveled off to the side. But, you know, 
while it's a big deal, like you say, at home, and it's a big deal, especially in China right now, with these two uh, men now sitting in, a, in custody, uh, it's still just not making any headlines down in the U.S. And what about the extradition of the Huawei CFO? Is it on track? I mean, is it going through the normal course, or <laughs> is it stalling at this point? How anxious well, I mean, are they? How, how anxious are they to get her down there? Well, I mean, they are anxious to get her down here because especially with an escalating situation to do with Iran right now, she kind of ties into that when it was believed that there were may have been conversations and sales that were going back and forth between China and Iran. So this could kind of play into that bigger escalation of tensions right now when it comes to Washington. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, extraditions usually take 30 to 60 days, but they can oftentimes take 90 days or longer, depending on how many lawyers need to be involved, how many departments need to be involved. Uh, you know, when this is kind of a, an issue around, uh, you know, the judicial system, but it's also kind of looking at uh, national security, there's a number of departments and levels that need to be contacted about this. So this is, uh, you know, it's, it's a long process and it's a slow process. But in the end, the U.S. justice system and anybody in Washington will say that it's worth the wait because we will end up seeing what needs to happen. Uh, are Canadians putting pressure on the United States to, 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 to make this happen either one way or the, or the other? I mean, as that uh, one caller was saying, does Canada have any sort of uh, of, of position to take where, you know, we've got two Canadians here that have been detained. Now they've been charged. Uh, Lord knows what happens once that process starts. Uh, this extradition process seems to be stuck between point A and point B. Does Canada have any option or is there a chance? There was lots of chatter about this before when Donald Trump was making reference to this being linked to a trade deal. Can, can, can Canada say, hey, listen, you know, we've gone, we've done more than our, our, our heavy lifting here we've got two Canadians who are being detained and now charged you either got to make this happen or we're gonna let her go I don't think Canada is gonna kind of pull any kind of trigger to say well look if we don't get any kind of USMCA NAFTA deal dealt with now we're not gonna deal with this extradition any longer or even any action on the detainees well at the I mean at the end of the day the US kind of has to follow what the rules of extraditions are and there are treaties that are in place that you have to follow the rules of that's not just between the US and Canada that's amongst any of the extradition treaty nations around the world so there are uh, steps and processes that need to take place. But when the president was using this kind of thing as a bargaining chip when it came to NAFTA, I don't really think that's going to go any further as well. If Canada does something that might kind of tick off somebody, you know, at the highest level in Washington, whether it's about this this uh, this issue right now with the extradition, whether or not it's about something with NAFTA, the president can kind of take it upon himself like we've seen him do in the past and kind of, you know, implement something that may be, uh, you know, even more detrimental to Canada than what we're dealing with right now. So I think that the steps and processes that are being taken place right now are what needs to happen with what's gone on over the last 24 hours, though, I wouldn't be surprised if we see kind of an increased presence now in conversations between the Foreign Affairs Department and the State Department. Considering the issues and trials and tribulations that China and the United States are having trying to get a trade deal done, where is it now? I mean, it just seems that this all of this is just dragging on forever. Well, I mean, this is a kind of finger pointing back and forth between the U.S. and between China when it comes to trade by saying, well, look, if you're going to tariff this, we're going to tariff that. And it keeps going back and forth. Uh, you know, the president continuously says that trade deals are, are close to being completed between the two countries. And then we kind of see that additional taxes are put on things. It puts additional pressures on things. You know, China and Beijing have basically been saying, well, look, if you continue to do this to us, we're going to stall this out even longer. We're going to continue to either put additional tariffs on things or we're just going to stop using U.S. goods and agriculture 
agriculture altogether and will go elsewhere in the world. So the president is set to meet with Xi Jinping uh, right around the end of June. We'll kind of see where this has been going on and how much this has escalated by the time they have a face-to-face with each other. But as of right now, the, these trade talks, the, these negotiations going back and forth, they stalled out last week. They didn't really continue up this week. And it's kind of anybody's guess to see what's going to happen when it or who's going to kind of make the first move when it comes to either clawing back or going even further. It appears, as you mentioned, that this extradition will go through. Um, uh, It will happen. So any reason to think that China won't retaliate more against against Canada? Well, there is reason for them to retaliate even further if she is, you know, when she is officially extradited down to the U.S. But it becomes kind of a tit-for-tat comment because Canada will say, well, look, you can't retaliate against us. We were following what the extradition treaty has to do with. You may want to direct your kind of anger and focus on the Washington. Although we could see, you know, you know, when it comes to things like, uh, you know, 5G technology, when it comes to things like stealing secrets, when it comes to things like trade, China is a big player in all of those games right now. And going down the road, you know, it, it's we're unsure as to what China might do when the extradition actually takes place and who's actually going to bear the brunt of that. All right, let's change gears here, uh, Reggie. Uh, Conrad Black uh, gets uh, gets pardoned by the President of the United States. How is this story playing? Well, I mean, this story is actually getting some headlines down here when you wouldn't think that it would be. Really? But most of the Yeah, most of the cable networks have had some pundits on. They've been talking about it because this kind of is following a line of what the president has done since he took office, where he offers up clemency, he offers up a pardon to somebody who might have experienced the exact same ordeal that the president has been going through, whether or not it's accusations, whether or not, uh, you know, it's, it's now uh, uh, convictions for people who are being pardoned. He kind of goes along and toes this line of people who were in the same, uh, you know, pot that he was in, although the president wasn't charged with anything and offers up clemency. It's what we saw with Conrad Black. It's what we've seen with people like Joe Arpaio, uh, the sheriff from the, from the U.S. Southwest who was convicted of, uh, you know, doing things that had to do with immigration. So, uh, you know, we saw it last night. We said, wow, didn't really see this one coming. And then you read it and Conrad Black wrote, you know, a kind of a nicely glowing book in 2018. He wrote a nice comment about the president in 2015. And we know what flattery gets you when you're dealing with Donald Trump. How is this even on Donald Trump's radar, though? Well, I mean, clemency, uh, you know, pardon, or requests for pardon have to go through a number of levels. They have to go through uh, the office of the pardon for, for uh, the legal steps there. And then it goes through the president's, uh, you know, administrative staff. And then it kind of makes its way up. But these two people have been friends for a good number of years. The president was originally going to testify at Conrad Black's trial. They have links with each other when it came to building Trump Tower in Chicago. So these are people that have known each other both through the social world and through the business world over the years. So this is just the president basically extending that olive branch out to say, well, look, you are my friend. I'm going to help you from the troubles that you say that you were unjustly accused of and, and convicted for all those years ago. How is this playing in the U.S.? Is this warranted? Well, people are saying, again, there are some critics of the president uh, who are saying he's kind of using the the power of the pardon uh, in a more political way than presidents before him have. Now, he hasn't handed out just as many uh, uh, pardons as his predecessors have, but each one that he does kind of has a political motive behind it. Look at somebody like Dinesh D'Souza, who was a conservative uh, commentator. Look at somebody like Joe Arpaio, who was a very Republican and right-leaning sheriff. Look at somebody like Conrad Black, who had, you know, who was a wealthy socialite, who had a vast business empire and made made kind of glowing comments about the president. These are political moves that the president looks to try and solidify and drum up base uh, support for him in the Republican side by saying, look, I will go and I will help these people who are gone after by the left. Uh, What does this mean for Conrad Black? 
Well, Conrad Black now officially is a free man in the United States. He has no more, you know, his, his conviction expunged, his details of all that have been expunged. So, you know, we're trying to look to see now whether or not uh, his ban on traveling into the United States after he was deported and has been living in Toronto, whether or not that sticks, if he's allowed to restart traveling back into the United States, if there could potentially be a meetup between the two men uh, as a kind of a way of saying thank you outside of that brief phone call that happened uh, within the last couple of days to, to, uh, to offer up this pardon. So going forward, I mean, any number of things can happen for, for for, uh, for Conrad Black up to and including potentially moving back into the U.S. So uh, does this mean that Donald Trump will pardon others? I mean, many were thinking those related to the Mueller investigation and, and not really thinking that Conrad Black was on the radar. Does this mean that others are on the way? Well, I mean, the, the question over presidential pardons has kind of hung loosely and highly uh, ever since Donald Trump took office and the investigation started up. We know that there were reports that somebody like Michael Cohen, the former, former fixer for President Trump, had requested a potential pardon. We know that there were potential pardons that were going to be laid out for uh, somebody like uh, for Paul Manafort uh, linked to campaign finance violations and all the fraud accusations and fraud convictions that he's facing. The problem is, is that a number of people who have been uh, convicted or are, are awaiting charges awaiting a a, a jury for people close to Donald Trump, they're also being charged with state-level crimes right now. So the president can go ahead and offer a, 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 a pardon, rather, for a federal, a federal conviction. But when it comes to state-level or local-level uh, issues, those can't be pardoned. So he can offer the pardon, but it might not do much if somebody else is convicted at a state level. Uh, did Conrad Black make this request? Well, we know that there has to be a kind of request that puts that's put through the, the judicial office. So, you know, there very well may have been some kind of uh, conversation. We, you know, Vox is reporting that based Basically, this was a campaign promise that Donald Trump made to uh, Conrad Black a number of years ago. So there there has to be some kind of channeled communication. The president can't just really pick up the phone and say, well, I'm pardoning you without going through the potential and possible legal steps. Although there are some uh, critics, again, of the president who say that he's overusing and abusing the power of the pardon uh, from what it was supposed to be. And, uh, and, and, you know, we'll see what happens going forward with any other people that potentially get, you know, let off the hook. All right, lots of chatter about what's been happening in Alabama in regard to uh, changes in uh, the abortion laws down there. How big is this playing in the state? Well, this is going to be a big deal for the next couple of days. It's going to be a big deal for the next couple of months as additional states start to look at how their abortion laws are. And then it's going to play an extremely big factor as we head in towards the middle of 2020. As we start off with Alabama right now, though, this is now going to be the, or it now is the strictest abortion laws across the United States. The governor, K. Ivy signing this into law yesterday that basically makes abortion illegal at all points up to uh, with the exception of uh, if a woman's life is in trouble and and a doctor who provides an abortion could face life in prison or somewhere between 10 and 99 years with no uh, kind of um, uh, trouble for the woman who received the abortion. So this is going to uh, kind of cause big problems and legal challenges going forward. There are a number of groups up to and including the ACLU who have come out to say that this is basically taking the choice of a woman away. Alabama's done it already. Georgia has a law on the books that uh, stops uh, any kind of abortion when a fetal heartbeat is detected. We know Missouri is about to try and pass a law that says that you can't get an abortion anytime after eight weeks, and this includes in cases of rape or incest, or if you find out that a child may have some kind of uh, disability that uh, that may you know cause issues as you bring the child to term. This is all just kind of part and parcel of a larger conversation that anti-abortion activists have been pushing for the last 40 years to get Roe v. Wade overturned at the Supreme Court level. How can they pass laws like this at the state level? Will this not be overturned at the federal level? Well, so this is the thing. All of these states that are passing these laws right now have a Republican majority. So So they're going to court. 
Basically, so the, that's what the reason that a lot of these things are being done is. The Republicans know that it has kind of no chance of passing right now at the first legal steps. The governor saying in Alabama, at least, that, you know, this is likely not going to happen for the next six months pending all the legal challenges. One of these state cases will end up in the Supreme Court, and we know that the that the uh, top court will likely hear something by June of next year, which would put it right in the middle of the campaign of the election campaign, which will then make it a, an incredibly large talking point for Donald Trump to say, well, look, I promise that I would put conservative judges in place. I promise that I would stack the bench on the Supreme Court with conservative judges who will help to get rid of Roe v. Wade, whereas Democrats are going to take this and run to say, look, the Republicans right now are trying to take your choices away from you. They're trying to dictate what you can and cannot do uh, when it comes to, you know, the, the topic of procreation and, and you know, how, how we deal with this going forward. So you can imagine that this is going to be a huge issue by the middle of next year, although it's an incredibly huge issue right now for the people that are affected across the U.S. South. Do Republicans and Donald Donald Trump want this to be an election issue. Will this help or hurt them? Well, I mean, Republicans for a, for a good number of decades now have been running on saying, look, we need to get Roe v. Wade overturned. We need to have abortion laws basically wiped off the book to make it an illegal issue in America. That's what Republicans have been running on. Donald Trump kind of flipped his opinion going from Democrat to independent to now Republican over his lifetime. He's now in line with what uh, hardline Republicans are looking for. So this is something that's going to play a big role going forward. This could have a, a giant outcome. This could change the outcome of the election, could it not? It absolutely could, because there are a number of people. Look, just because a Republican state passes a law that says that abortion is going to be illegal, it doesn't mean that everybody inside that state who even is a Republican is going to go along with that, because all it takes is somebody that you know who is raped or somebody that you know uh, you know, could potentially have uh, an issue with, the, with carrying a child to term that uh, you know, might be you know, detrimental in the very early stages of the pregnancy that can't get access to an abortion. We know, you know, Missouri and Alabama already have just a dwindling number of abortion uh, and health and women's health care clinics that are in place right now. We'll see what happens going forward with that. But Republicans who are going to the ballot may say, well, you know what, this takes it a step too far. You know, I might not like the idea of abortion, but I don't like the idea of making it illegal for the entire state. So this is going to be something that the Republicans really need to kind of corral together and get the idea brought out and the idea brought forward as to how they're going to frame this as a piece of legislature moving forward. Uh, could this blow up in Donald Trump's face come election time? Uh, could this be one of those issues that, that that takes him down? I mean, just simply because it would appear to to many women that this is a step backwards. Well, absolutely. I mean, there are a good number of Republican women who kind of stand with Donald Trump and what he has to say. But there are a large number of, of people who just did not bother to go out and vote in 2016. And this could be one of those issues that brings them out of the woodwork to say, well, look, I can't have a Republican president who's going to take away my choice. You know, it's one thing to think about the fact that in something like Alabama, when this law was passed, everybody except four people inside that Senate chamber are men, and it was the four women who voted against this right now. Now you have an entire state full of women and an entire country full of women who are saying there's a male president and there are a number of male legislatures across this country that are trying to dictate how I treat my own body. Uh, this could be a big thing that kind of takes the women that the president has really been trying to court into his circle and push them towards, if not the Democratic circle, just no vote altogether based on this issue. 
Why would he even want to start this fire? It's like he's standing over another bonfire with a can of gas and a match in his hand. Because these are campaign promises that he made, and these are campaign promises that Republicans have been trying to make for 40 years, saying that they are going to take Roe v. Wade off the books. And now with the Supreme Court that's kind of stacked and leaning to the conservative side, this could be a big win for the president if he does win a second term, if if, uh, further Republicans are elected going forward, saying, look, this is what I promised, and this is now what's happening, despite the fact that many women and all Democrats are fully against this. Are you surprised this is has the legs that it does? Are you surprised that, that this is even an option? Not really, because especially in the U.S. Deep South, this yeah. is something that has kind of been rooted into into the law in, uh, for a long time. You know, abortion rights and, and pro-life advocates have basically been kind of, you know, pushing this basically since even before the days of Roe v. Wade. So this is something that everybody in the United States South who has been, you know, a part of this Republican push to make abortion illegal uh, have been pushing by saying, well, look, we, we, we don't know what happens inside the womb outside of what doctors and science can tell us. But this is a living thing that's inside of a woman. So we, you know, we have to treat this something along the line of murder and that's where this is now going to and this is why it's going to hit a number of legal challenges going forward. Reggie Giacchini so with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked on this show uh, at length um, and specifically with Sam Cooper, a national online journalist of investigative uh, reporting Global News. We're going to talk to him in uh, a few minutes again. Uh, But he has brought to light him and a series of reporters for Global Out West um, the amount of money that has come into British Columbia through uh, Chinese organized crime, uh, it is then funneled in through the uh, real estate market. They've they've estimated that jacking up the price of, of real estate in uh, B.C. by as much as uh, 5%. Uh, then the end result is uh, lots of fentanyl coming flooding in uh, from China through the West Coast as well. Uh, and some incredible reporting. And I, I remember having um, one of the one of the people that are quoted in in this article on the global um, uh, website, uh, Professor Maureen Maloney of uh, I believe Simon Fraser University has quoted this this staff with with uncovering some incredible information. But what I found fascinating in all of this is that BC is like fourth uh, for this sort of thing in line in the province, uh, Ontario and Quebec. Uh, are even getting a greater uh, amount of money being laundered through their provinces. Uh, British Columbia has just announced an inquiry into this, and they've estimated that last year alone about $5 billion was laundered through the B.C. uh, uh, economy, through the B.C. real estate market. Uh, A report from 2015 alone said roughly $8 billion was being washed through the province of Ontario. Uh, And as Sam Cooper has stated, Ontario's got a bigger problem than B.C. has. Uh, to talk more about all of this and how this is affecting the real estate market in Ontario, let's bring in Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, and he is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, of course, Scott. Could be back on your show. Uh, we've talked about this situation in British Columbia, and, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, and by the way, it's worse in Ontario. How bad is this in Ontario? Well, I don't know if we know an exact number, but the most recent data comes out of British Columbia, the government there did a thorough study of this issue of uh, dirty money uh, coming into Canada, uh, going into you know casinos to be washed, to use that term, luxury cars and real estate. The estimate, Scott, was I believe about $30 billion in real estate properties being snapped up by this dirty money. And the majority of that, sorry, the largest share would be in the province of Ontario. So more than the BC numbers you said, 
you know, what Ontario realtors say about that is we don't want a single dollar of dirty money coming into the province. We want that, you know, law-abiding Ontario family living in Hamilton to have a fair shot at owning a home, not laundered money from some overseas drug lord. How does this affect prices in the marketplace? Well, it's got to drive it up. Again, there's no data on Ontario. Uh, when we heard about the BC report, we immediately contacted the Ontario government and said, you know, you guys got to look into this here. Here are some uh, options. But, you know, number one, uh, what we don't like about this is it facilitates some of the most heinous crimes, you know, across the world from drug smuggling to gun running, uh, to name just a couple. And then secondly, it means that real estate is being snapped up and snapped away from Ontarians who play by the rules and, and drives up prices. There are a number of solutions we put on the table. We've shared them uh, with the province. And hopefully, similarly, we'll see some action here in Ontario. And obviously, this all tied into the fentanyl situation, uh, which we know how devastating that's been. So this is a double-edged sword. Not only is it driving up real estate prices, but it's killing Canadians. Yeah, look, I saw some of those stories on fentanyl in British Columbia. I don't have much to say about that, Scott, in the province uh, of Ontario. But you know what? Um, just to explain how this happens, I know you've covered this extensively uh, on your show. You, so, say you've got a, a corrupt mayor over in China, for example, and he's stealing money from locals or getting payoffs. What he fears is there'll be somebody even bigger than him up the line that will take his money. So they try to wash it into Western democracies where it's more stable to own it. Now, it won't say that he owns a property in Hamilton or Toronto or wherever, but they'll put it through likely a numbered company or a numbered trust. And we don't know exactly who are the owners of those numbered companies. Canada has strong privacy laws. I get that. But we can't have these types of criminals hiding behind the veil of numbered companies. So what what can uh, what is Ontario doing about this, considering that, as these reports have said, it's, it's bad in B.C., but it's apparently worse in Ontario and Quebec than it is in British Columbia? Yeah, I mean, Ontario is a much bigger market, so I don't know percentage-wise, but for sure it's going to be a concern here. I think, Scott, two things. I think, number one, this news really just hit like a tidal wave in B.C. and has now spread to Ontario. Far more people are talking about it than they did a couple of years ago. And, you know, with politicians, they've got 100 different issues on their plate. I think by being on your show, that the Real Estate Association, of which I'm the CEO, has spoken out about this. We can get it moved up higher in the ladder. There are solutions. Let me walk you through a couple. I mean, number one, there are other Western uh, democracies that have done something about this. The United States, uh, United Kingdom, the European Union. And they've said they have to do something called a, um, a beneficial uh, registry, the beneficial owner registry. So you can't simply have a numbered company. You'd actually have to list for these companies who the owners are. It's a searchable database. And then the RCMP can say, okay, we can tie now that's the, the niece of the drug lord from Central America. We know that money, she only makes 30000 a year. We know that money is illegal money. They can investigate. But without knowing who the owners of these properties are, you can't do that in Canada. And all the money's coming here now because they're cracking down in these other countries. So what's the chance that our government will do something on this? I mean, clearly this is being exposed. As you mentioned, the story just keeps building. Yeah, I, I, I think that, well, they need to. Um, again, it's a new issue that just sort of hit us in the, in the media. While it's been happening, there wasn't the focus. Hopefully now there will be. We certainly put suggestions uh, on the table. So, uh, Scott, we certainly want to see that because we want to make sure that people... It's hard enough to get a home, right? It's hard enough to get into the market these days, yeah. especially for first-time buyers. And then to have you know criminals snapping them up, it runs against everything that we, we stand for. 
So you can do this beneficial member registry. The province of Ontario would be responsible, so that's one way they can act. You can have stiff fines and even jail time if you lie or don't fill out those forms. And the other area that's pointed out, Scott, is around uh, solicitor-client privilege. So lawyers are the ones that set up these numbered companies, numbered trusts, so they'll know who the people are that are behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, most of them are legitimate for sure, but we've got to weed out the criminal elements. In England, they looked at how that solicitor-client privilege worked and found a way to make sure that lawyers could report suspicious activity. And right now in Ontario, that is not happening. Well, you know, you bring up a very valid point because this doesn't happen to this scale without somebody knowing about it. Yeah. Um, you like, know, like, how, like, you know, like everybody's pointing to this BC story and going, oh, my God, look what's happening out here. Meanwhile, the reporters are saying, hey, this is the tip of the iceberg. We're like fourth on the list. These other provinces, it's, 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 it's even a greater problem. Um, it's amazing that it, 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 it went undetected. I guess it didn't because those in the know knew, but it certainly the public didn't. It's amazing it grew to the scale that it has in such a short period of time. Yeah, and I suspect because the other countries um, I talked about earlier on started making it tougher for the dirty money to come in, they're still looking for safe havens, and Canada's a very safe haven for this. So I bet you it's accelerated, you know, once the U.S. and, and the Brits and everybody started cracking, cracking down. You know, there are some professions that are regulated by this that are supposed to report suspicious activities. Realtors are one of those. Banks are one of those. There are others like lawyers and mortgage brokers that are not captured. They should be. But no matter how good that profession is, you still need to have the tools to reveal who the owners are, right? Like a, a, a realtor can't be Sherlock Holmes and figure out who the owners are through a whole series of companies. If the Ontario government changed the law so they could realize exactly who's hiding behind um, the shadow of these numbered companies, that'll make it a lot easier for law enforcement to truly crack down. But that's a necessary first step, I think, Scott. Tim, Tim, we've obviously known what's happened with the real estate market here in the last year or two. Can this somehow, you know, how it sort of went up to the peak there a year or so ago, and then it, it, it dropped and, and now has, has leveled out a bit, is any of that related to this, do you think? Um, you know, look, I, I think that... Um, the reason real estate has done so well in Hamilton and Burlington is just it's a great area to live. More people are spreading out that way. It seems to be working quite well. And no doubt our local realtor leaders there with the Burlington and Hamilton Association could talk more about what's happening um, on the ground in real estate as a whole. I think it's pretty tough, Scott, to your question, though, to tell you know what percentage in a particular area was caused by dirty money. In our point of view is let's just get at it, right? There are solutions on the table. Other countries like, like Ontario, like Canada, have found a way to do this. And there's no doubt that Canadians tend to have much stronger privacy laws than other jurisdictions. But in a modern age, when you have this type of problem, when you're supporting this type of criminal activity, and when it's pushing home ownership further out of reach for struggling families, it's time for government action. Tim Hudak has been with us, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, talking about laundered money coming into Ontario, similar to the situation in BC and how it is affecting the market here. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for interest, Scott. You have a great day. You too. Uh, Let's bring in Sam Cooper uh, now uh, from Global News Investigative Reporter. Sam, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. Are you surprised how this has opened up a can of worms the way that it has? And it was you guys that started this with with talking about the B.C. uh, laundered money and such. Now there's a B.C. inquiry going on and a lot of suspicion across the country. Are you surprised? Well, I'm not surprised that at what has been revealed about the scale, because I've been following this for about 
four, three, four years, five years really in British Columbia, I sort of stumbled onto the real estate money laundering story, just recognizing some very big players. They happened to be uh, foreign uh, nationals, all from China in BC. And it just, it, it, I realized these were the most aggressive real estate developers in the city. It became clear that they were connected to corruption money. Later, it became clear, connected to casino money laundering and eventually drug trafficking. So that is just the crime model that is responsible for a dominant, massive flow of crime money in British Columbia. And so uh, for the government in B.C. to, to extend the study and their financial modeling across Canada... I understood that this was uh, this underground banking really with connections to foreign countries was very active in cities across Canada. They have done the modeling and uh, that's something that governments are able to do if they want to. I'm not surprised, but certainly if you look at Toronto, Montreal, I've been reporting on the international uh, crime syndicates merging with local crime syndicates to run a lot of money into condos. And uh, we've, we've also reported on the connections between uh, really criminal terrorists and uh, transnational crime as well. So where is this money coming from? Well, it, it's really a globalization story. It's a global money flow story. People have, uh, you know, read the news stories about how a, a famous bank tied to Hong Kong and Britain was uh, uh, implicated laundering money allegedly for cartels, for oligarchs. This is what's happening in Canada, but uh, underground banking is the model. So it's an ancient form of money transfer where people collect drug money in another country and they they uh they get it paid out through uh family member banks really in in cities around the world this is how money and drugs is moved around the world and uh i mean each country has their own slant on it but what makes canada a target is uh we have a lot of loopholes and most of them revolve around lawyers the legal industry and lack of diligence in in in, in industries such as real estate that's why the money is being laundered here uh, is the majority of it coming from China? How much of it's coming through the United States? So my investigations in British Columbia have, have focused mostly on this Macau, Hong Kong, China, Vancouver underground banking model because that that is the, really, if you look at the history of Vancouver, what I have found is when some uh, extremely wealthy tycoons that, uh, you know, started buying land in Vancouver in the late 80s and 90s. Suddenly we started to see unexplainable movements in the market. And really, uh, we can't, I mean, the RCMP believes some of these tycoons are connected to organized crime. So that's a British Columbia story. If we look at Miami, then you're talking about the South American cartels, London, the Russian oligarchs. But across Canada, it's different in each city. Uh, I've noticed that with your reporting, you're quick to link it to Chinese. You're quick. You're quick to link it to Chinese organized crime. But in a lot, a lot of the other major news outlets, they're just saying organized crime. Why is that? Well, again, I I really focused on British Columbia and Vancouver because that I was uh, working right. there, and on you know you could evidently see it that that's where the big money was coming from. That's what was moving the market. So that was my focus, and my police sources were pointing me towards those documents, those crime networks. Uh, the recent study has pointed to money from the United States, and really my investigations in B.C. 
don't evidently see that moving the market in terms of organized crime. However, we do know that uh, the the Mexican cartels have just been singled out in recent reports right. as working together with uh, Middle Eastern organized crime through the underground banking in British Columbia. So what will this public inquiry do? Are you expecting anything concrete from this? I'm expecting that, uh, first of all, uh, there are people in the industry that haven't uh, answered my requests for information. I, I've been looking at documents that, that uh, really, I think, compel answers. And uh, the, the inquiry will be able to, uh, to ask those people to come forward uh, and testify or, or be uh, in con- held in contempt. They can also compel documents. And I can tell you there are documents out there that I know will prove certain things that uh, have been held back under privacy laws or under uh, disclosure harmful to law enforcement. And I believe the inquiry will be able to obtain those documents. Is the cat out of the bag now on this? On this story, uh, I'd like to say that the scale of the problem, I mean, some people are, are already questioning the financial modeling. Is there really a $10 billion per year in Alberta? Is it that bad in Ontario, etc.? Look, my investigations have focused on police information, court documents. So I, I think the scale is starting to get there. It's starting to match up with what my sources, my investigations show. But I don't think the cat is out of the bag in terms of connections between organized crime, business, and even potentially elected officials. I have seen red flags there, and it's a very, it's really a, um, in some ways, a, a scary place to investigate. But mm-hmm. I, I can tell you, I'm seeing those signs, and I hope that the inquiry goes there. Uh, Sam, I know you've explained this to us in layman's terms before, but we always get callers asking this whenever you're on. Um, basically, explain how this works, how this money's laundering is being laundered in simple terms. So in simple terms, Macau is the, the largest, the mecca of gambling. It has been that way for decades, and that's because of money coming out of China. That's the Macau model in China. Wealthy people can only export $50,000 per year, so they go to Macau, they take out a loan, and they pay it back in China. That loan, it happens to be, comes from organized crime, comes from drug money. So that's a way to get your money out and around the world. And in very simple terms, that model was exported to Vancouver as casinos grew and expanded. The gangs from Macau came with uh, the expanded gaming model here and did the exact same thing. So when people ask, why are you looking at Chinese money in Vancouver? That's the answer, pure and simple. There you have it. Sam Cooper has been with us, national online journalist, investigative reporter for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on this. Fascinating stuff, Sam. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good work. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.